This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. We are in Proverbs 2. This is the third week in Proverbs. We took a couple of weeks in chapter 1. We'll go all the way through chapter 2 this morning. And let me just tell you, while you're getting oriented there, what I have been pleasantly surprised with about the book of Proverbs so far. I have been pleasantly surprised with how natural it has been in Proverbs to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. And and here's why I say that. Uh, I preach the gospel, we preach the gospel every week. If you've been coming here for a long time, if you have only been here a few few weeks or you're sometime uh, in between that on a timeline with our church and you're thinking, it feels like most of the sermons, all of the sermons sort of end up the same way here. Don't worry. That's on purpose. They're all the same, in fact. It, what I would be really nervous about is if you felt like, well, that one was different from the rest. Then I get nervous that we're not doing our job. We're no longer preaching the gospel. And because if we're not doing that, what we, what we end up doing is falling into some kind of self-help, you know, us-centered, uh, moralistic deism. And that's not what we're doing here. We've gathered under the banner of Christ to celebrate the good news of Jesus. That's our only hope. And so we preach the gospel every single week. But truthfully, I I was kind of worried that there wouldn't always be an easy path to see that in Proverbs. I said last week that much of what we're reading in Proverbs, much, much of the things that come out of this book are not necessarily exclusive to Christianity. Uh, Much of Proverbs is just good life advice. But again, that's not what we do here. We're gospel people. And so I've been pleasantly just kind of delighted to find how easy it is to see that Proverbs is not just an advice book. It's not even a wisdom book in in, in the typical sense. It's a gospel book. It's about God's mercy toward people. It's about how he turns them toward himself and, and guides them toward true life, which is life with him at the center. So I I was sort of wondering, as we launch into this book, is that just going to kind of jump off out of the page every week, or are we going to have to to set to work to see that? And and I'll tell you, there are some weeks coming where we're going to have to put in the work, but I've just loved kind of living, I've been living in this book for the past month or so. It's not hard to see the gospel in Proverbs. It, it jumps out. It's a wisdom book, but it's so clear that the point of the wisdom is Jesus. The fulfillment of the wisdom is Jesus. Ultimately, to know wisdom, which is not only the goal of this book, but the goal of our lives, to know wisdom is to live for Jesus Christ. And we see that very evidently in, in Proverbs chapter 2. So, so let's start with this this morning. When it comes to faith in Jesus, is that something we accept once? Just think about this question. Is faith in Jesus something we accept once? Or is that a decision we make every day? Is faith in Christ 
something that happens one time or is living by Christ a daily commitment? It's kind of a trick question. The answer is yes. If you're like, I just don't, the answer is yes. You can actually do both of these. And I asked it that way on purpose. There, there is a point in time for every single person. You might remember it. You might not remember it. But there's a point in time for every single Christian where the call of God to hear the gospel, to repent of sin, to be justified before him based not on your work, but on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross There's a point where you heard that. If you're a Christian, you heard that and you responded to it. But we would be naive and we would be negligent to think that the entirety of the Christian life, even though Christ did the work, that there's just nothing more to it than one time accepting that. So let's just say it like this. The beginning of of the Christian life, there is a beginning to the Christian life, and then there's the rest of the Christian life. You hear that? There's a beginning to your Christian life, and then there's the rest of your Christian life, and neither is more important because you really can't separate one from the other. In fact, here's what you get if you try to separate these things. If you want to, and some people do this, if you want to try to emphasize the beginning of the Christian life, to put all your kind of focus on when did you accept Christ and what does that look like to begin in the Christian life, but don't talk with people about the call to pick up their cross daily and follow Jesus, which is one of the primary ways that Jesus calls or Jesus talks about following after him. You get people who just tell stories from a long time ago about one thing they did one day, one aisle they walked, one hand they raised, one prayer they prayed, but there is no evidence of their conversion. In other words, they don't look much different. They just tell you a neat old story. The work of the gospel should produce ongoing transformation. But on the other hand, while a believer in Christ may, be, may not be able to point to a particular date, I know a lot of your stories. Some of you can point to a date, place, and time. Others can't. What you should be able to say is without a doubt, there was a time when I was living in my sins in my trespasses, and then God made me alive to Christ Jesus. If somebody can't testify, even if they don't remember when exactly it was, that they used to live in sin, but now they live saved, there's then legitimate reason to wonder whether they've actually been justified before God. And if there's no evidence to show that, that justification has been made, a person may not be converted. So we're starting there. We're starting with, have you been justified in Christ? Is there evidence in your life of conversion? Because Proverbs chapter 2 helps us to see see the stark difference between somebody who's been awakened to the the beauty and the, the holiness of God and somebody who hasn't really been converted at all. And, and what it says here is if you trust him to do this work, God won't only 
call you. He will lead you toward growth, growth in him and throughout your life. Your faith, while your faith will be tested, while you will be tempted to trust in something else, God promises that if you're in him, he will protect you. So when I say protect, there's one, one thing we, we kind of need to define that term before we begin to read. When I say that God will protect you, that doesn't necessarily mean that every outcome you desire will be favorable for you. So a few weeks ago, in the very first week of this series, I said these are proverbs, not promises. This isn't some kind of a spiritual vending machine. We don't put a little money in and get exactly what we want out after we punch in the right combination of letters and numbers. That's not how this is. That's not how this works. This readies us. These are here to help us prepare for what life may bring. And then it's a book for the back end. Even when we're on the other side of what life has brought, maybe even when we're not sure what to do with where we're at, there's a way to read Proverbs that helps us to make sense, not of every single circumstance or to know the outcome that is always promised, but Proverbs gives us, kind of call it this, kind of gives us a North Star. It says, even when you're not sure what to do, even if things haven't turned out in your favor, fear God, live uprightly, because even if you find yourself down and out, God will never leave you. Even in the midst of struggle, you will be there knowing that you've honored him. And that is really, really important because not everything will go your way in life. And so you have two choices. You can try to manipulate your life, maybe even bring about a desirable outcome. But I promise you, even if you get what you want, but you've got it dishonorably, if you've done it in a way that doesn't honor the Lord, it won't be that satisfying or fulfilling. You'll actually feel kind of crummy about it. On the other hand, if you find yourself, even though things haven't gone the way you hoped you would, they would, but you find yourself sitting there saying, I have honored the Lord. I have lived uprightly. You will be able to say to yourself, I've done what it is that I have been asked to do. I have been faithful with this. So even when things don't go your way, you can go there, you can be in that moment saying, I've done what it is that God has asked me to do. And that's what Proverbs 2 is, is all about. So let's read. Uh, we're going to do this in two parts. Breaks down really evenly. Just two parts, verses 1 to 11. They're going to talk to us about how we're grown in Christ. And then in verses 12 through 22, we're going to talk about how, how we're guarded in Christ. 1 to 11, how we grow in Christ. 12 to 22, how we're guarded in Christ. So let's just, I'm going to read all the way till verse 11, then we'll take a break, talk, and do the second half later. My son... If you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, 
Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. So this first section focuses primarily on how we're going to grow toward godliness. It's kind of framed around five statements. There are three if statements. There are two then statements. So look at verse one. My son, if you receive my words. Look at verse three. If you call out for insight. Verse four, if you seek it like silver. Then we have then statements. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord, it says in verse five. And in verse nine, then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity every good path. So again, these are Proverbs, not promises. So you shouldn't read this as some kind of a guarantee as if God is saying, if you call out for insight, then I'll make sure you understand everything. You'll never have to wonder why things go that way. You'll never have to do that again. That's not the kind of promise being offered here. But there is another kind of promise that Proverbs can make. It's the kind of promise where you learn, you take in from wisdom, understanding, clearly seeing alternatives, and know that our only hope for godliness and our only hope for uprightness is to seek God and to fear him above everything else. So while these aren't promises that guarantee favorable outcomes, They are promises that you'll never be satisfied living another way. Here's a parallel. Think of it like this. Uh, I do quite a bit of counseling with couples who are preparing for marriage. Uh, Under most circumstances, when when I'm performing a wedding ceremony, I'm sitting down with a couple for a series of of sessions where we're just talking through not only what's the the purpose for marriage and a, a biblical definition of marriage, But what I want to do in that time is set a couple up in every way I can to have a healthy marriage. So what I'm doing is I'm giving them principles for a healthy marriage. We're talking about things like how to fight fair. Couples fight. The key is can you fight fairly? talking about forgiveness. We're talking about being soft to one another. Talking about how to make sure when your spouse wrongs you, you don't assume that they've just woken up in the morning and said, how can I make this person's life miserable? We're talking about just because you load the dishwasher differently doesn't mean you're you're a bad person. (laughs) Doing all these things. So we talk about how to make marriage help marriage flourish. But here's the thing. Even though I can impart good principles, I can't 
guarantee that every marriage will work. I can't help married couples to avoid every hard day, or month, or years of marriage. So does that, does that even mean, I mean, just ask this, does that even mean every couple who hears my advice is going to stay married for the long haul? The reality is, no, it doesn't. What I'm doing is laying out promises, not promises that if you do this, then you will guaranteed success in marriage, but I can almost guarantee you that if you don't do these things, you have no hope of happiness in marriage. And I can guarantee you that if you do these things, this is the best shot at a flourishing marriage. And so in the sense, are they promises that guarantee results? No, but are they promises from my own life, more so even from the scriptures, from what I've been able to glean from other healthy marriages? This is the way to have a healthy marriage. Yes, that's what we're doing in Proverbs. We're saying, listen, there are a lot of ways to live. There's one way that gives you the best shot at a fruitful life, and that is to honor God and to grow in Jesus Christ. There's a lot of ways to ruin your life. There's one singular way to see that you have a fulfilling life, to see that you have a full life. That's to honor Christ. And so what are we told then to the wise here? What kind of promises then are these? We're told that in order to do these things, you need to receive these words and treasure them up. Listen, I only want to make just, I want to make one singular point that combines all of these things that we're told to do in the first half of Proverbs 2. Look at all these word pictures, starting in in verse 2. Make your ear attentive, incline your heart, call out for insight, raise your voice for understanding, seek it like silver, search for it. One thing I want you to see, Look at how active all of these are. Look at how they take work. The point is that you won't grow in Christ by accident. If you would sit there and say, if if, if, if you will say, you know, I'm not opposed to getting closer to God, but I've got some other stuff going on. I'm kind of busy right now. I'll see if I have some room in my schedule and maybe if I find myself with some free time, I'll give it to godliness. You could even do worse than that, I suppose. I suppose you could say, well, I, I, I guess I'd like to grow in God, but, but only if it's kind of in ways that are fairly convenient and comfortable for me and among the people I'm already comfortable with. If that's your approach, then you are in grave danger of being at the place where chapter one ended. Chapter two comes on the heels of chapter one. Chapter one ends this way, by saying the simple are killed by their turning away. The complacency of fools destroys them. Without intentionality, you will not grow in Christ, but worse than that, without intentionally, you will be destroyed in your life. So if you're wondering what to do then, okay, that scares you at least in a little bit, I'd say it like this. What do we do? We start with the opposite of complacency. 
and that's intentionality. Intentionality is a desire combined with a plan and then setting about getting to work. A desire, a plan, get to work. All of those action words from the first few verses of this chapter will fit right in under intentionally seeking the Lord, deliberately looking to him. And if you wonder, well, doesn't this sound like a a kind of a legalism where am I just supposed to do all this kind of work? I thought we were a gospel people, a grace people. I would just answer that right back by saying, this is only legalism. We're only talking about your work. If the goal is you working to earn the favor of God, but that's not at all what's being said right here. We're not trying to manipulate or coerce God. This isn't something even born out of our own selfish desires or or kind of our self-centered motivations. God is inviting us into this. He's hoping this is what we will do. His deepest desire for us is that we will do and live exactly this way. Just read again verse 5. When we receive God's invitation to do this, look at what he delights to do in us. Then we understand the fear of the Lord which is the beginning of wisdom. We find knowledge in him. He gives this to us. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity. God watches over his saints, it says. And then verse 11 says, the more we do this, the more God will give to us and the more we will desire it. And don't forget, all all of this comes, it starts out as saying, this is a father talking to his son. That's what verse one says. These are words of love. This isn't just what God is willing to give us. This is what he most wants for us. So it's not legalism. It's not us centered to want what God intends and desires to give by grace. You know know what I think holds us back from this more more than anything? It's fear. But not fear of the Lord, It's fear of what it would mean if we really did this, if we really stepped into it. It's it's easier to keep God at a distance because that feels safer. But again, verse 5 says, if we seek God, we will understand the fear of the Lord. Then we find knowledge of him. So this is God saying, if you will desire me above all else, If I'm your treasure and the things that the world would offer look more and more like the cheap trinkets that you would win at a carnival game, if you'll come to me in repentance through my son, who I gave as as an atoning sacrifice for your sins, if there was a greater urgency in your prayer, if there was more heartfelt, heart-rending confession. If you loved my word and delighted to have your path lit by it, if you did those things, then you will find in me a deeper and more satisfying life than you would ever know that it's possible apart from him. So I think it's as simple as this. Anybody can know the matchless love of God You just have to genuinely want it. Anybody can know real life in God. He'll reveal it to you. You simply have to really want to. Really want to see it. 
In him, wisdom comes into your heart and knowledge is pleasant for your soul. And we need to know what real life is because the second half of this, whether we know what real life is, whether we know what wisdom, or not, what wisdom is or not, we still have to live in the real world. And that's still going to come with temptations and it's still going to come with pitfalls and it's still going to come with opportunities to either choose and honor and obey God or inevitably in the midst of this, fall away from God if we're not in him. And so let's just, I want to pick this up in, in verse 12. And I'm going to read through 19, and then we're going to stop, and, and, then I'll, and then I'll finish up the chapter. So looking again, let's look at verse 12. So all these things, and then delivering you from the way of evil, from the men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of uprightness, to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in perverseness, in the perverseness of evil. Men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. So what we have here is a plea to live a certain way, honoring God, knowing wisdom, saying this is real life, and then we've got two very real world temptations. Verses 10, 12 to 15 tells us about being, about being tempted by the words of people who will lead us away from God. Perverted speech means words that try to turn things inside out or things upside down. It's kind of literally what perverted speech means is things are pulled inside out or turned upside down. And you see that the result is crooked paths, devious ways, delighting in evil. There will always be men and women who will try to manipulate us and turn us away from what is good in the wisdom of God and many of them will be clever enough to do it using nothing but their words. This feels like a temptation and a problem very particular to our day, doesn't it? Uh, most news, current events, the way what, what we consume has become so carefully packaged and delivered to us in, in short sound bites that almost always lack a wider context. Psychologists have definitively proved in study after study that our attention spans have gotten remarkably shorter in just the last couple of decades. And in response, people who want power or influence over us have figured out that the way to get it is not only just to tell us exactly what we want to hear, but to do that in ways that can be easily shared on social media by people who will just watch something for a few seconds before we're ready to scroll on to the next thing. That's why we, we rarely hear anything, read anything, see anything that captures the nuance 
of complicated national or international problems. How many times have you seen a meme that tries to take something happening internationally and reduce it to about eight words and think, if you don't see it my way, you're an idiot? That's what we do all the time now. You've got 10 seconds, and if you don't agree, and and let me solve this problem for you in 10 seconds, and if you don't agree with me, it's probably because you're stupid. Folks, the world is full of very complicated problems. And increasingly we see the people who are less and less careful and thoughtful are the ones asked to lead. It's people who can shift the blame and incite a kind of hysteria in just a few words. Church, we need to be very careful and diligently watchful People who only care for themselves, who their gain is their number one priority, will try to captivate us with the ideologies of this world. And they're going to be good at it. Their intentions won't won't always be obvious. But God says, I'll guard you from this. He's offered us his spirit, his word, and his son, Jesus. So be vigilant about whether you are hearing truth of God or you're just hearing spin. And if you're wondering which side of the political spectrum spins the most, we can answer that one yes to. Second temptation is to sexual sin. But I also want you to see how connected these two temptations are. Look at verse 16 once more. The adulterous woman comes with what? Smooth words. More words. Sometimes she comes literally. Sometimes she comes figuratively. In either case, the smooth promise is passion and fulfillment that she can't possibly deliver. If you're a married man, Whatever you think adultery will bring you, it will do more than the opposite. It'll ruin your life. It will absolutely destroy your life. Adultery is not an indiscretion. It's not a mistake. It will tear apart your marriage and your family. Literal adultery or pornography is just the same thing. Whatever escape you think it brings you, it's greatly exceeded by the shame it returns to you. In both of the cases, the warning's the same. Run. Don't walk. Don't think about it. Turn in the direction of God and run as fast as you can. Several years ago, I had an old friend, one who I hadn't talked to in a long time, come to me, and I still to this day don't even know why he, he reached out to me in particular, but he was looking for advice. Uh, a, a woman at his work had been coming to him, coming, kind of coming on to him, and, and he had been enjoying the attention, and they'd been getting closer, and, and nothing physical had happened, but they'd gotten close, they'd been confiding in one another, and, and he 
was thinking about her a lot. I think he knew what the next step, if there was going to be one, would be. And he asked what I thought he should do, and I said exactly this. Run. Run so fast that she thinks you are weird and rude and uh, completely uh, just doesn't, even if she doesn't understand why you've done this, turn and run. I mean, never talk to her again. If you've got her phone number, you can send her a text and say, this is the last time we're ever going to text. I'm never going to talk to you again. I don't care to even explain the reasons to you and then delete her number from your phone and be done with it. If you have to talk to her at work, I, I, I give this, I've given this advice just a couple of times in my entire pastoral ministry. If you have to talk to her at work, quit your job. You can always get another job. Biblically, unless your spouse dies, you can never get a new spouse. You can always get another job. Lots of jobs out there. Only one spouse the Lord has given you. So you run. If there's something else that you are giving your affection to, if you are spending your time wasting it, if you're wasting your life on the internet, if you're wasting your life in pornography, if you are giving yourself over to something, it will never return anything that it promises to you. Whatever escape you think it offers, it will not offer you any kind of freedom. It will not offer you any kind of fulfillment. It will bind you. It will own you. And it will kill you from the inside out. Until you are a shallow, hollow, shriveled up, barely person. So don't do it. And if you're doing it, Stop and run. Folks, there's grace in God, but you have to run to him for the grace. If you're into something, the worst thing you could do right now is think, I don't have anywhere else to go. You can always run to God. There's a whole lot of people here who want you and will run with you. Talk to me Talk to Pastor Tim, talk to one of our elders, talk to a Christian you trust, but the worst thing you could do is if you're feeling conviction right now over something is walk out of here and saying it's just too deep, it's just too dark. Folks, I've heard it. I've heard it all. Don't do that. Run to God. Ask another Christian to run with you. And then this ends. This is how you do this. You wonder, well, what, what, what exactly do we do? How do I do this? How do I run? Here's verse 20. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. Kind of a strange way to end, talking about the land. Here's what this means. The, the key here is for the upright will inhabit the land. In the Old Testament, the land, the nation of Israel, the place promised to God's people, was given to them for their safety, for their protection, for their peace. In the New Testament, there's something even more generous given to Christians. It's no longer a land that's our place of peace and protection. It's no longer a land even that's our home. 
We can be at home in any land on earth. We could be at home if we figure out a way to get people to Mars. Because our home, we're told in the New Testament, becomes abiding in Jesus Christ. Romans, or sorry, John 15, 7 says, If you abide in me, this is Jesus, and my words abide in you, and whatever you wish, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. The upright now, after the cross, after the resurrection of Jesus, after the coming of the Holy Spirit, the upright abide in Jesus Christ. They inhabit in Jesus Christ. They live in Jesus Christ. And so if you wonder, how do I find peace and how do I find this kind of security and how am I guarded in the midst of a tumultuous world? You're guarded in Christ. And so go to him. The people were told to go to the land in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we're told to go to Christ. He's our peace. He's our safety. He's what we will dwell secure in. And so even when things feel stormy, Christ will never fail. He never leaves. Even if you feel like I am a ruined sinner, deeply flawed, even if my Worst actions have come to light. Christ still says, you can come to me. You can ask for forgiveness. I will grant it. You can ask for mercy. It will be yours. You can ask for grace. It will wash over you. I will see that it washes over you. And you can find life and you can find fulfillment in me. So that's the plea of Proverbs 2. Abide in Christ. Inhabit Christ. The opposite, the, the other alternative is to be cut off from Christ. And you don't want that. You want to be in him. So that's the invitation that's held out here. It's Christ. Abide in him. Have life in him. Know fulfill, fullness and fulfillment in him. And live in him. Let's pray together. Father, in a world filled with empty promises and real temptations, you give us peace and security through Christ. May we run to him. May we take hold of him and may we rest in him. I do pray for anybody in here who feels the weight of their sin, who has fallen to temptation, that they would know that they do not have to make that the final word because the cross finished sin for all those who give it over to Christ. And the resurrection is the sure hope of anybody who is in him. And so I pray not only for the ongoing transformation of our hearts, but that sin might be rooted out and that we would live in the glorious newness of Jesus Christ.
in his name that we pray. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.